The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I'm going to go out on a limb, though, and I'm going to guess that Psalm 110 is not on anybody's bumper sticker, if you still have bumper stickers, um, and not on anybody's t-shirt or coffee mug. or uh, And your, your life verse, if you have one, is not, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Um, but for many of you, when you read Psalm 110, you think, oh yeah, that sounds... That sounds familiar, and, and that piece sounds familiar. Uh, that's a good reason for that. There's, this psalm is the most cited psalm in the New Testament, uh, in whole or in, in part. Uh, Jesus himself quotes and discusses this psalm, and, and so do a number of the, uh, the New Testament authors. Uh, but if it's possible, I think some of us suffer from both a lack of familiarity about Psalm 110 and a little bit of over-familiarity with it at the same time. We can kind of skim over this psalm because certain parts of it are familiar to us and sound familiar, but the overall meaning of the psalm is fairly obscure. Uh, we don't really know what to do with it. It doesn't sound like a psalm of praise. There's, there's not a bunch of clear commands to, to follow or clear encouragement for us out of it. So we see a couple of the familiar elements, and we kind of jump ahead to what the New Testament has to say about them. Uh, and then we're kind of off to the next psalm, because we're on a reading plan. And that one's a little easier to understand and apply. So my hope is that after today, we have, we'll be a little bit more grounded in our understanding of Psalm 110, what it is, what's going on with the whole psalm, and what it has to say to us. And there are some glorious promises here for the people of God. Uh, but we're going to start looking at just what it is we're reading when we come to this text. What is Psalm 110? So start with the basics. It's a psalm. Uh, it's a hymn that God's people use to, to worship him. Last week we, we looked at a psalm of ascent uh, with, with Dan, and there are different types of psalms. There's, there's psalms of praise, there's psalms of lament. Uh, there's, according to, you know, depends on who you listen to, there's 50 different types of psalms, or 10 different types. Uh, but this one is pretty universally recognized as a royal psalm. So in those days, when there's a coronation or some other event for uh, a king, it's customary for somebody that's part of the king's entourage, if you will, uh, to offer up a song or a poem honoring the king, and basically blessing the king and declaring that he will prosper, especially over his enemies. Uh, and a modern example of this is the English national anthem, God Save the Queen. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. You probably know the, the, the song behind it, but the lyrics uh, sound familiar to us. Here's some of them. It says, Long live our noble queen, God save the queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious. 
long to reign over us, God save the queen. O Lord our God, arise, scatter her enemies and make them fall. Confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks. Uh, I like that, knavish tricks. It's very English. Um, the way that song is meant to work is pretty obvious, right? It's, it's written for the people of England to sing uh, to their queen or king, depending on who's uh, in, the, in power. And ostensibly, they're singing it to God, blessing their, their queen. They're asking God to save and keep her. They're asking God to prolong her reign and help her prevail over her enemies. Um, so how about Psalm 110? How is this supposed to work? At one level, it sounds a lot like God saved the queen. So imagine for a moment that I'm a court official in ancient Israel, and I'm addressing the king after he's been, just been crowned in a great ceremony. And I say to the king, I have a message for you from God. The Lord God says to my Lord, the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, O king. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The Lord God is at your right hand, O king. So much of Psalm 110 sounds like that. It sounds like somebody speaking to the king in a ceremony, blessing the king, telling him it's going to go well for you because God's on your side. But there's a pretty important difference between God save the queen and, well, there's a bunch of differences, but one of the main differences is this is identified as a psalm of David. Now, the fact that it's attributed to David may mean that David himself actually wrote it. He wrote a bunch of psalms. Uh, it may mean that somebody in David's court or his entourage um, actually wrote it on his behalf. So a modern example of that might be where we attribute a speech to one of our presidents. Say Ronald Reagan gave you know, the speech, tear down that wall. But we know actually that there was a speechwriter behind that that wrote a lot of that. Nevertheless, we call that Reagan's speech. So, uh, this, some of the Psalms attributed to David may be written in that kind of representative way. Uh, but I believe that Psalm 110 was actually penned by David at some point, because in Mark 12, 36, Jesus quoted this Psalm and specifically attributed it to David. Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared these things. So that's good enough for me to say that David was, in fact, the author of of this psalm. Uh, so if this is David the king writing, then what's really going on here? Who is he writing this to or about? Uh, so to get the answer to that, we have to look back. We have to get a little bit of context around what's called the Davidic covenant, or the covenant or promise God made to David. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that David, after consolidating his kingdom and conquering the surrounding enemies, he says, you know what I should do? I should build God a house. I, here I am living in this nice house. There's lots of cedar. And God, meanwhile, is living in a tent. So I'm going to build God a house. Uh, and starting in verse 9, uh, God says, he answers in an interesting way. He says, you want to build me a house? No, like, I, don't, I don't need that from you. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build you a house, David. He says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this promise to David and his physical descendant, his offspring that comes from his body, he says. David's throne is going to be established forever through this descendant. There's probably nothing that a king would want to hear more than that. Your kingdom, your son's kingdom, is going to be established forever after you. And it looks like the promise has a particular descendant in mind, uh, one who would build a house for God's name. That sounds a lot like David's son, Solomon, uh, because the immediate context is David's desire to build a house for God, and we know that Solomon actually is the one that uh, God had in mind to build the temple. So we might think, okay, well, that's, that's nice. It, there's a promise that David's and Solomon's kingdom is going to continue forever. Forever is a long time. That's, that's cool. Um, but we get some more color around the, the promise in Isaiah 9. Verses 6 to 7, Isaiah prophesies about this descendant of David whose throne would be established forever. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's more to this promise than a succession of kings coming after David and, and Solomon. The one who would sit on David's throne will be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So this is a clear reference to the divinity somehow of this, this Messiah that's to come. Uh, the promise in the Davidic covenant would be a source of great hope for the people of Israel, too, in the years to come, especially when it looked like God had abandoned them for their sin. Psalm 89 focuses on the eternal nature of the Davidic covenant, and that it's sure and trustworthy because God is sure and trustworthy. God, in verses 35 to 36, says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. But when that psalm was written, it looked like the covenant had been broken. It looked like it was over. Verse 38 says that God, God's wrath had been poured out against Israel. There was no Davidic king on the throne. But the psalmist says God's promise is sure. It doesn't look like it, but his promise to David is sure. It's lasting. It will come true. So as a royal psalm of David, Psalm 110 naturally has to be understood in light of the Davidic covenant, and specifically in light of the promised Messiah to come. And that's how God's people would have understood it. But there's one final aspect of Psalm 110 that's important to understand. It's not just a royal psalm, it's prophetic in nature. This, this psalm is prophecy. It opens with the phrase, the Lord says, and that's a really significant phrase. It's, it's very common throughout the prophets, and it's used to signal this is an oracle of Yahweh. 
Uh, it's only used twice in the Psalms, which should draw our attention to the fact that the psalmist is conscious of the fact that God is speaking through him uh, to God's people. God's divine words are being spoken. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, Psalm 110 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. But not only that, but we have extensive interpretation of this prophecy in the New Testament. So I think it's awfully tempting when we come to Psalm 110 to just kind of bounce forward and think about the New Testament interpretation of, uh, of these prophetic aspects of this psalm, especially because how this psalm points to Jesus. And so it's tempting to read it solely through that lens. And that's actually how a lot of commentators approach this psalm. They say things like, uh, this psalm is directly and immediately and solely to be understood concerning the Messiah. In other words, they're re reading it as written by David consciously and, in and intentionally on behalf of not his immediate descendant, but this future descendant that would come. Uh, and so, for example, the psalm would have nothing to do then with God Israel's victory over its physical enemies. It would only look forward to the Messiah's victory over God's spiritual enemies. But other commentators don't approach it that kind of in that narrow sense. Recognizing the prophetic nature of the psalm, they essentially look at it through two lenses. There is the, how Psalm 110 was originally written for the immediate descendant of, of David. And then there's also a secondary focus that is for this future descendant of David. So Psalm 110 may have been written by David specifically to his near-term descendant, perhaps Solomon, uh, while simultaneously the Holy Spirit speaking through David has a secondary future-focused meaning in mind. So I think this is a better way of doing justice to the prophetic nature of this psalm. This is how we read a lot of prophecy. It has both a near-term fulfillment in mind and a long-term fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment. So it had this, this both this secondary prophetic meaning, certainly, where David is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is writing to his future descendant. But it also may have been written with this immediate descendant in mind, uh, such that when he set, intended for the people to to be singing this, to be declaring this to my Lord, they're speaking to their king. So now that we've looked at what Psalm 110 is, and it's a royal psalm of David to be understood in the context of the Davidic covenant, it's prophecy. The next question is, who are the persons that are involved in this psalm? There are a lot of lords and yous and he's, uh, and we'll, as we'll see, identifying who it's talking about has actually a really big impact on the meaning of the psalm. The most significant work is in that first line. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now imagine for a moment if the psalm was written slightly differently. Imagine if it said, the Lord says to my son, etc. Well, then it'd be pretty easy to see who's talking, what they're talking about, who they're talking to. Uh, this would be a straightforward blessing pronounced by David on behalf of God to his son. But he, here he says, the Lord says to my Lord. David, for some reason, is speaking of his descendant as his Lord. 
Now, the words for, there's different words for Lord here. The Lord in all caps in our Bibles is the English translator's way of referring to the Tetragrammaton, which is the name that God revealed to Moses. I am that I am. Uh, we also pronounce it Yahweh. This title is only and always used for God himself. The capital L, Lord, is a different word. It's Adonai, which is often used to refer to a person in a superior position. We might say, my Lord or my master. There's not necessarily something, something divine uh, in that connotation. So the psalmist is saying, the Lord God says to my master. Now some of you might be thinking, why are we nitpicking over, over words like this? And that's a fairly common accusation today. You evangelicals are just wasting your time. You're hyper-focused on, on verses or even words. Uh, but we don't even know that these words were written down in a trustworthy way. We don't even, we can't even trust this. Maybe this is just a mistake, the my Lord piece. Well, Jesus and the New Testament authors thought these words were very important. They hung a lot on the identity of these individuals who were speaking here, we're speaking about. So Jesus used Psalm 110 to make an argument that the Messiah must be divine for David to call him Lord. In Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46, we see this scene. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, of course. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Notice that Jesus doesn't challenge their understanding of the Messiah as the son of David. He doesn't say, son of David, wrong. No, no, he, he adds to that. He says, yes, but well then, why does it say that he's calling him Lord? He's pointing them to a fuller understanding of who the Messiah would be. Yes, he's David's son, but he is also David's Lord. And they had zero categories for this. They had zero answer for this. It just kind of blew their minds. And to, to see why this is even an argument, look at the nature of what's going on. This is a deeply patriarchal society. You know, this are a, a, a father is not going to say to his son, my master. You're not going to call them your master. It's supposed to work the other way around. The son calls the father master, calls the father lord. And that's the issue, much less, though, that would king, the king, the ultimate king, call his descendant Lord. And that's the issue that Jesus' argument raises. The fact that David calls him Lord means there's something different happening with this descendant than you would, would appear on the surface. And note as well that Jesus' whole argument is dependent upon these particular words and these particular identities of the people involved. It's also dependent on the accuracy of these words. It's dependent on the truth of who wrote it and to whom. It's dependent on the prophetic nature of the words. You take away any of that and Jesus' whole argument falls apart. 
Peter uses Psalm 110 as basically his closing argument in Acts 2 in his sermon at Pentecost. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, have, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, because Jesus has been resurrected and has risen to the right hand of God, he's been shown to be the Christ. He's been shown to be the Messiah that Psalm 110 predicted would come. Yes, he is the son of David. He is also Lord. He's also David's Lord. He's sitting exalted at the right hand of God. And this particular piece becomes a huge theme throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 110. I'll just run through a few examples. There are many. In Acts 7, what does Stephen see when he's being stoned to death as the first martyr of the church? He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. In Colossians 3, Paul tells the church that because they've been raised in newness of life with Christ and his resurrection, they should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In 1 Peter 3, Peter reminds his audience that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Four times the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. In the letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The New Testament authors don't really repeat Jesus' argument and use it as a way to prove the divinity of the Messiah. Instead, they basically assume that their audience knows that if Jesus has risen from the dead and if he has ascended to the right hand of God, that means he is the Messiah prophesied in Psalm 110. So then the last place we look at the, the people involved, the last few verses, there's another reference of, to the Lord as well as some references to you and he. Verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Here, the Lord goes back to referring to God. We know that because the Lord here is a different word. It's Adonai or Adonai, which only refers to divinity. Psalmist is saying that God will be at your right hand, O king. He will conquer your enemies among the nations. He will execute judgment against them on the day of his wrath. But who is he in verse 7? It says, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's a picture of someone stopping to refresh himself in the middle of battle, and he's refreshed, and he goes on. Now, that doesn't sound like a very divine thing to do. It sounds, men need to refresh themselves. God doesn't. For that reason, some commentators see a kind of an abrupt shift in the reference. So the he in verse 7 is actually the king. Because this is a royal psalm, they say, this verse could be 
referring to a royal ceremony where he stops and, and takes a drink from a fountain and symbolically is strengthened for his reign. The king will have his head lifted in triumph over his enemies. But I think the better way to understand the he in verse 7 is consistent with verses six, 5 and 6. The psalmist is saying that God will rest in victory. It's what we call an anthropomorphism, where the psalmist is poetically attributing human characteristics to God. Here, he's poetically ascribing this to, he's painting the picture of this warrior God coming and conquering. And God the warrior is sort of this heroic, victorious posture. So now we have a, a solid grasp on what Psalm 110 is, its context, who the people are involved. We can move on to the really important question of what does, what is the message of Psalm 110? And I submit that this is not just a proof text for the divinity of the Messiah. There is a prophetic message here for God's people. And this is where I think it's most helpful to understand Psalm 110, both in terms of its near-term meaning and its longer-term meaning. There are parallel promises that apply both to David's near-term descendant and to Jesus as the messianic king to come. We're going to look at three promises. One, the son of David will conquer his enemies. Two, the son of David will rule over all. And three, the son of David will be both priest and king. The first promise is that David's descendant will conquer. More than that, though, God will conquer his enemies on his behalf. In verse 1, he basically says, sit while I conquer. Sit at my right hand, and I'm going to work a victory for you. The victory was so complete, God will make his enemies his footstool. So picture this. The king is sitting on his throne. There's somebody that is on their hands and knees in front of the king, and the king is just reclining with his feet up on this person's back. Or even, they're lying on the ground prostrate in front of the king, and the king is putting his foot on their neck. That's the image we have here. It's a picture of the absolute humiliation of the one who used to be exalting themselves against the king, who would have taken the king's crown if they could. Now he's reduced to this object of scorn, and the fact that he's been conquered is on display for all to see. This conquering, though, will be an expression of God's wrath as he executes judgment among the nation. He's going to fill them with corpses. This is righteous judgment. This is God's holy wrath poured out. How much more, then, will the Messiah conquer? In Colossians 2.15, Paul says that God has disarmed the rulers and authorities that have aligned themselves against him and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Christ the King has decisively conquered, and his victory is sure. And yet, there's still a future aspect of his victory to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24-25, Paul says that Jesus is still in the process of destroying those rulers and authorities aligned against him. And on the final day, all Christ's enemies will be put under his feet. That day will be the full and final vindication of God's holiness as his wrath is poured out on his enemies in judgment. The second promise 
is that David's descendant will rule. In verse 1, we see him sitting at God's right hand. He's sitting at God's throne, ruling, as it were, with God. In verse 2, we see that he has a mighty scepter and will rule over his enemies as he conquers them. In verse 3, we see that he will rule over the people as well, who will offer themselves freely. This is a people that adore their ruler. They want him to rule over them. It's a picture of absolute, unquestioned authority with everyone, friends and enemies alike, acknowledging his rule and reign. How much more, then, will the Messiah rule? In Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23, Paul says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus doesn't just reign over an earthly kingdom. He reigns on high at God's right hand over all, everything that has ever existed and will ever exist. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, that on that final day of judgment, every knee will bow to Jesus, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. Right now, no one properly recognizes Jesus' authority. No one gives him the, the praise he is due, the honor he is due, not even us. But there's a day coming when no one will be able to do anything but acknowledge Jesus as the rightful Lord of all. And just as the people of Israel would offer themselves freely to be ruled by this Davidic king, so now through the new covenant in Christ's blood, God gives his people a new heart and a new spirit so that they would willingly, joyfully follow him. We can now obey God from a heart that wants to, we want to be ruled by our good and gracious King, Jesus. The third promise is that David's descendant will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This one is a little strange in its near-term significance because God's law drew distinctions between the king and the priest for the people of Israel. David's descendant is to be king, so he can't really be priest. At least according to the regular priestly order of Aaron that you have to be born into. Instead, God says he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I know some of you are thinking, Melchizedek who now? Uh, stick with me. Melchizedek is a mysterious figure that appears in Genesis 14 for a very brief period. He's identified as the king of Salem, the city that later became Jerusalem, only while the Canaanites were still living there. He's identified as the priest of God Most High. He shows up, pronounces blessing on Abraham by the name of God, and Abraham in return gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And like that, he's gone. So Melchizedek is both king and priest. But this is before there's even a people of Israel. This is before, way before there's a line of, of priests, beginning with Aaron. 
David says that God has sworn that his descendant will be a priest forever, only in this Melchizedekian priestly order. So we see some echoes of this in how, how David actually acts. He's king, not priest. But in 2 Samuel 6, David takes it upon himself to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. In that story, he does some very priestly things. He makes sure that sacrifices are made along the way when they were carrying the ark. He's wearing a linen ephod, which is what priests wear. When the ark arrives, David offers more sacrifices, or at least orders that they be offered, and then stands and provides a priestly blessing to the people in God's name. So much the same way, David could be pointing his descendant to the fact that he, as king, he's going to be responsible for upholding the the worship of God in, in Israel. He won't be a priest from the line of Aaron, but he'll act like a Melchizedekian priest while also exercising his authority as king. Well, however this is supposed to play out exactly for David's descendant, it had a whole different and more significant impact and implication for the Messiah to come. We don't have to guess at what those implications are. The author of Hebrews deals at length with how this prophecy in Psalm 110 was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews 5 says that although Jesus was not a priest of the Aaronic priesthood, he was designated or appointed a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 7, the author of Hebrews describes how Melchizedek's status as king and priest is unique in that he just sort of appears out of nowhere as a priest, and there's no explanation of where that came about or how it might have ended. Uh, And then Abraham pays tribute to him as to the greater by paying him tithes. Then the author draws parallels between Melchizedek's priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. Jesus' priesthood doesn't come because he descended from Aaron, but his priesthood comes from a function of who he is. He comes because by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus' priesthood is permanent. He is a priest forever, according to God's oath in Psalm 110. And Jesus' priesthood is utterly unlike the priesthood of Aaron, because unlike these sinful priests who are operating under the Mosaic law, Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is perfect, and so his priesthood is perfect. And finally, like Melchizedek, Jesus is not simply a priest. He's also the king. The writer of Hebrews points out that that the king of Salem means king of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Remember Isaiah 9. He creates peace between God and man by the sacrifice of his blood for our sins. So the promises in Psalm 110 are rich. These rivers run really deep. Psalm 110 is one of the scriptures where really the entire narrative of scripture comes together and meets. The Old Testament meets the New Testament. But I want to bring this down to a bit more practical level and leave you with a couple takeaways by way of application. First, be encouraged by Psalm 110 to take the Bible really seriously. There are great riches here, and it's not always on the surface. John Piper uses this this comparison, this analogy between raking the surface and digging. And certainly, we can get something when we kind of rake the surface of Scripture, 
But when we do the hard work, when we dig into it, we find gold. It shows us here that Scripture is multifaceted. This, the Lord says to my Lord, such a simple little phrase, but Jesus shows it has huge implications for who the Messiah is and his divine nature. Read what's on the surface of Scripture by all means and stay and ponder and consider the implications. Psalm 110 shows us that Scripture teaches by implication as well. The psalm also shows us the importance of the very words of Scripture. Every word has been breathed out by God. There are no mistakes. It's all by His design. Scripture is trustworthy and true. We should have such confidence in the words of Scripture. The second takeaway is this. Grasp on to who the Lord Jesus is and what He has done as revealed in Psalm 110. Believe it. Treasure it. Jesus is the son of David, the physical descendant of King David who would take David's throne as the promised Messiah. He isn't just David's descendant, though. He is David's Lord. He is the Lord. He is fully God, fully divine. Jesus has conquered over sin, death, hell, all of God's enemies. He's risen to the Father and sits at his right hand, reigning even now. And he enacts his rule and reign through the church. Jesus is our great high priest. This is a perfect, permanent priesthood. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he always lives to make intercession for us, his people. That's because he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin once for all, that we would be made righteous. And yet, his final victory on the final day, the day of God's wrath, the day that his holiness will be vindicated once and for all against the sinful rebellion of man, that final victory is still to come. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to fulfill this earthly kingdom. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.